0: Great. Let me begin by saying a huge thank you to the organisers. Um, and I'm very keen for your feedback. There are many more people in this room who are much more expert about this subject than I. Um, so in his recent monograph, Frédéric Bédois pleaded, I am not trying to question... Ah, OK, fine. There's one mysterious blank slide has crept in. OK, view. <laughs> I'm not trying to question, uh, to answer the question of what a quintessentially Jewish architecture looks like. It is as difficult to answer that question as it is to sort out what is Jewish about the Jews. Debunking the idea of stylistic essentialism, Bedouin urges us to consider Jewish architecture not just in its deviations from the norm, but also in its bid for assimilation. Self-consciously progressive, Jewish domestic architecture in the era of emancipation was characterised, he thinks, by its eclecticism, its comfort, and its eye for quality. In practice, this meant that the Jewish elite were often attracted by idioms imported from across the channel. They participated in the craze for a medley of French historicist styles in late Victorian Britain. Put simply, old French styles allowed a rapidly diversifying social elite to affirm their membership of an exclusive transnational club. The avowedly cosmopolitan houses that resulted from this fad can often seem like bizarre alien growths in the English countryside. My chosen example today, Old Way Manor in Paynton, is no exception the now sadly decaying property has been swallowed up by the encroaching seaside town. It does not much resemble a country house, and even the Jewish credentials of its first owners, as we'll see, are questionable. Yet in what follows, I want to use some of Old Way's oddities to try and destabilize the categories at work in the Jewish country house, and reveal some of the multiple points of contact and the porous boundaries between the different social groups who, when at home, went French. Now, Oldway was the brainchild of Isaac Merritt Singer and his descendants. A 19th century celebrity, Singer lived a life of mythic proportions. The sewing machine he patented in 1851 became a global brand and enthroned him among self-made millionaires. But what about his ancestry? Most probably, Isaac's father was born Adam Reisinger and emigrated to the United States either from Frankfurt in 1769 or from the Rhenish Palatina in 1803. On arrival, Adam abbreviated his surname, worked as a millwright, and married a Dutch Lutheran, Ruth Benson. Um, and Isaac was born to the couple in New York, Pittsdown, in 1811. Now, there's no evidence that Isaac thought very much about his father's German-Jewish background. To cite a letter from his son, William, our dear father, Isaac Merritt Singer, never for a moment claimed to, sorry, failed to claim and insist That he was an American citizen and always in fact an American. Only his children began rediscovering their Jewish connections around 1905. Isaac personally had minimal instruction in any faith and seemingly possessed no religious scruples. I think one of the reasons why he avoided talking about his family background was to mask his very chaotic romantic life. Between two legal wives, a common-law wife of 25 years, and numerous mistresses, Isaac fathered a total of 24 children in and out of wedlock. We um, only had sort of four wives for Lady Waldgrave, but 24 children for Isaac. Um, now, no matter his actual ancestry, Singer was often presumed to be Jewish. His surname, of course, matched prominent Jewish families in London. You might think of Simeon Singer in this period, who uh, worked on the Sidur, or David Singer in Paris, the great French philanthropist. Yiddish newspapers around Europe offered him as an example of a Jewish ingenuity and social mobility, and indeed he features in biographical dictionaries of the diaspora to this day. So rather than try and pinpoint or exaggerate Singer's Jewishness, I think his interest resides for us in how he moved between and complicated conventional markers of identity, and this slipperiness, as we'll see, was also mirrored in his children. Now, in the last decade of his life, Singer relocated to Paris, the home of his new wife, Isabelle Eugénie Boyer 30 years his junior, again the theme of massive age differences, 30 years his junior, she was the daughter of an African-born confectioner, and she bore him six children, including Winaretta, Paris Eugène, and Isabella Blanche. From 1866, they lived on the Boulevard Malesherbes, until the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War sent them fleeing across the Channel to London. After a few weeks in Brown's hotel, Isaac was urged on health grounds to take his exhausted wife to Torquay, the jewel of the so-called English Riviera. Genteel and full of foreign visitors, Singer liked the town and decided to stay. First of all, he tried to buy Isamburg Kingdom Brunel's estate, which is at Watcombe. But having failed to do that, he moved a little further up the coast and settled in the property known as Little Old Way, where he began a remarkable (coughs) transformation. Now, on the one hand, Oldway was intended to be defiantly American. Indeed, Singer dubbed his folly the wigwam. Uh, and on the roof, there was a carving of a Native American firing a bow and arrow. Yet, visually, as Winneretta recalled, the house resembled a rather florid French villa. In contrast to the predominant Italianate architecture nearby, Singer wanted something Gallic. And Oldway thus belongs to the first crop of French-themed chateau that was springing up on English soil in the 1850s and 1860s. In a striking reversal of values, it's in the 1860s that sort of harking back to the Ancien Régime is no longer just a penchant for Tory grandees, but rather becomes a byword for modern standards of opulence. You know, Edmund Morris argues that this is when the political meanings of Ancien Régime really transform. Now, inspiration was partly found in the renovation of historic monuments, including, of course, Loire Valley Chateau, the Hôtel de Ville in Paris, and the completion of the Louvre and the Tuileries complex. This latter project, the renovation of the Louvre by Napoleon III, boosted French Renaissance styles, um, visible, you can see, in Alfred Waterhouse's work at Eaton Hall uh, for the Duke of Westminster in the 1860s and 70s, um, a property that Ronald Gower famously called the Versailles of Cheshire. But I think as well as this kind of copying from French urban design, the other key influence for Second Empire style is in the London hotels, um, particularly the hotels that are popping up in the 1860s, like the Grosvenor or Charing Cross Hotel, which matched a kind of decorative classicism on the outside with invitingly plush historicist interiors within. Leading industrialists led the way in transplanting these metropolitan fashions to the English countryside. We might think of the French swagger implanted by Thomas Brassy, the railway entrepreneur, to his home Normanhurst in Sussex at the top. Or indeed, the salt magnate John Corbett's work at the Chateau Impney in Worcestershire, um, which was built by a certified Frenchman. So French style in the 1860s and early 1870s, then, is already correlated with new money. Uh, although at first, few French proprietors follow suit. Now, that's because some Jewish families in London never move out into the countryside, and it's worth thinking about the Stearns and the Raphaels as families who are Jewish in London and never really build a country house in the mid 19th century. And those who do buy in in at least the 1860s, like the Goldschmidts, tend to be buying Jacobean manors. And I think that's because they are kind of wary of an idiom, a French idiom, which is tainted not just by brashness, but also the unwholesome moral associations of the Second Empire. The Jewish-born financier and bankrupt, Baron Albert Grant, was a noted devotee of French fashions in Kensington, um, and which in turn reflected his close ties with Napoleon III. And I think it's due to such figures that Marc Girouard has argued that in the mid-19th century, French style still had, quote, slightly raffish associations. If we return to Old Way for a sec, um, Singer demanded authenticity from local Torquay architect George Suden Bridgman, and Bridgman up to this point, a Freemason, uh, had largely specialised in building hotels. Bridgman was sent to France in 1872 in order to make on-the-spot studies. Singer also demanded the latest comforts and conveniences, uh, especially central heating that he'd known in the United States. And I think it's interesting, again, that this kind of combination of a historical style and a highly modern Uh, comfortable interior. The most unusual aspect of the property was a fully working theatre on the ground floor to cater to Singer's long-standing love of the stage. It was the first design by Bridgman's young assistant, Frank Matcham. Uh, Some of you will know that Matcham went on to build 80 theatres around Britain, but the first one he did was within Singer's house uh, in Oldway. Now, this is a very eccentric house, uh, and the talky gentry kept a wary distance from singers' grandiose parties and circus entertainments. Yet on his death in 1875, Isaac was mourned in a lavish funeral by many working-class men and women who had benefited either from his hospitality or from his employment. Okay, final bit of the story. After his funeral, his widow Isabel returned with some of the younger children to Paris and lived on the Avenue Clébert. Her clear love of the Ancien Régime can be seen in the Rococo pastiche portraits that she commissions, um, and also her purchase of the Bloisville Manor on the Normandy coast. She remarried a Belgian violinist who used her money to buy a ducal title, as so often, uh, and set up a very wonderful salon for music. More importantly, she engineered brilliant matches for her daughters. Isabella Blanche married Jean-Duc de Descaires, much to the bewilderment and bemusement of the New York press. And younger, singer, sorry, younger sister, Winaretta, as some of you will know, in 1887 first marries the Duc de saint mont um, from a kind of Protestant background. But after that marriage falls apart, uh, she finds a much more mutually convenient match with Edmund Prince de Polignac in 1893, a man who shares her love of music, her love of the arts, and her homosexuality. It's a very happy marriage. Uh, Now, these glittering marriages had consequences for the status of Old Way too. Isaac's elder sons in England were largely interested in the sports. You know, they spent a lot of time uh, yachts, aviation, horse racing. But the Cambridge-educated Paris singer conceived of himself as an architect. And in 1897, he decides to move back into Old Way and transform his father's Victorian villa into an Ancien Régime bauble. First, he has a huge new colonnade placed on the outside of the house, which is directly inspired by Gabriel's work at the Place de la Concorde, directly modelled on uh, the Parisian original. Next, he invited the father and son team of Achille and Henri Duchesne, that Alicia mentioned this morning, to transform the lawns into French style parterre. Statues, sphinxes, urns, a lake, even a grotto, were all faithfully copied from the Petit Trianon. And the ensemble was capped off with a reconstruction of the Porte Saint Antoine, uh, which is now used as a triumphal entry uh, as you move into the Old Way gardens. The Duchesne family were the foremost garden designers of the Belle Epoque, with a client list made up of many French Jewish elite. Uh, and some of these people I'll come back to, but we might think about Jules Porges, uh, the French diamond millionaire, Louis Cran d'Anvers, that we've heard about already, Beatrice et Fourcy, down at Cap Ferrat, um, and they also do the gardens for the Hotel Commando. So they have a remarkable kind of Jewish client book. Um, the other property they work on most closely in Britain is Blenheim, um, working at that time with the Duke and his American wife, Consuelo Vanderbilt. Now, inside Old Way, Paris Eugène went further in resurrecting Versailles he ordered a reconstruction of Louis XIV's Ambassador's Staircase, uh, which is uh, which the original having since been demolished, um, and he uses coloured marble sourced from the original quarry used at Versailles. The painted ceiling above was a direct imitation of Charles Le Brun, and at the top of the staircase, you might be able to see, hung the mammoth oil painting known as the Coronation of Napoleon, uh, but which, more appropriately, as we know, is the Coronation of Joséphine. Now, this was a replica version painted by Jacques Louis David himself in the 1820s, and which Paris had bought in the auction in 1898. Who or what inspired this remarkable space? Through the Duchesne, Paris would have known the Palais Rose, built by the so called King of Snobs, Bonnie de Castellane, and his wife, the American railway heiress, Anna Gould. The Palais Rose in Paris had its own reconstruction of the Versailles Ambassador's Staircase. Yet further afield, Versailles also set the tone, as we heard this morning, for Gilded Age mansions in America, not least Marble House in Newport, built for the Vanderbilts by Richard Morris Hunt and decorated by the Paris firm Jules Allard. In all these interiors, I want to underline, we are confronted with a cocktail of influences, French, British, American, Parisian, Jewish, which I think are extremely difficult to prise apart. By the Edwardian period, the Jewish elite were increasingly identified with this ritzy French taste, as reflected in anti-Semitic polemics. Such associations were fueled not just by the Rothschilds, but especially by the South Africa gold and diamond millionaires who plowed their wealth into remodeling Georgian estates. According to Joe Morden Crook, these plutocrats hedged their bets. They outwardly conformed to an English classicism buying up Georgian, Adam-style properties, but then inside gave them the full tutti-Louis treatment. (laughs) For the exquisite Louis XVI interiors at luton Julius Werner employed the services of Charles Muez, an Alsatian Jew by origin, uh, who was famed for his work on the Ritz hotels, as well as using the services of the decorator Georges Earnschel. Muez and Earnschel had worked together once before on the property of the Jewish diamond millionaire Jules Porges and the great chateau at Rochefort-en-Yvelines, which itself tries to resurrect the 18th century Hôtel de Sainte. And so in these examples, what we can see is that fashionable designers relayed the tastes, brokered the relationships, and fostered stylistic borrowings among a very international clientele. And this brings me back, finally, to the difficulties of classifying Old Way. The current desperate state of the house speaks eloquently about the problems facing properties that transgress any single national heritage. Inexplicable in its Devon context, Oldway owes more to Paris and Newport, the Rothschilds, and the Randlords, than to anything built nearby. Its closest siblings are the greatest Beaux-Arts residences in Britain. Um, so in 1897, as work on Old Way begins, this is the year that William Waldorf Astor the great American millionaire, installs the panelling from the Chateau Desnières into his new home at Cliveden. In 1903, as Old Way is finished, this coincides with the moment in which Lady Fitzgerald, who, let's remember by birth, is Amelia Catherine Bischofsheim, has a version of Marie Antoinette's bedroom, you know, recreated within her home at Buckland. The appeal of this style then came from its supersession of national and ethnic particularities. And it's this, in turn, which made it supremely exportable. It seems fitting that in the 1920s, Paris Urgensinger masterminded the development of Palm Beach, uh, working alongside the American architect Addison Mitzner in order to bring a kind of neo-Rococo glamour to the Florida coast. He didn't build Mar-a-Lago, though. Uh, (laughs) Jews were just one group, among others, who found in French idioms both historic pedigree and modern comfort, and who adopted Gallic styles, I think, to simultaneously signal and conceal their origin. Great, thanks very much.